This podcast contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to We're Not Over Six Feet Under, the podcast where we talk about the aughts most morose TV show about a Gen Xer and a funeral home and mortality and stuff, episode by episode, spoiler free. I'm your host, Caroline McGraw. I'm a playwright and screenwriter. And I'm your other host, Jenna Shearer. I'm a writer, editor, and pop culture critic. And this week, we are so excited to welcome our very first guest, Megan Deans. Hi. Hi, Megan. Hi, Megan. I'm a guest. Megan Deans is a writer, television enthusiast, and book marketer. She writes plays about history and stories about falling in love in a Trader Joe's. She's the senior marketing director for Echo and Imprint of HarperCollins. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. I read that story about falling in love at a Trader Joe's. It was delightful. Oh, thank you. I have read some of your plays where there is history. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) The two of you might be considered the biggest fans of my work. Uh, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to the television series Six Feet Under? I would love to. I started watching Six Feet Under while the third season was on, but I did not watch the third season because I was in college and I did not have things like cable television Mm. but I lived in New York City and I saw an ad for the third season of Six Feet Under they had great ads they were so beautiful although I've recently looked up this ad that like really turned me on to the show and it's such a bummer like at the time it was it was everybody in the family sitting around the kitchen table and none of them are making eye contact with each other I know this ad it's a beautiful image but it is so sad and I just I have this memory of like walking down the subway steps at like 14th street and seeing that ad and being like yeah, that's what I need right now. <laughs> so I went to, um, this is a real throwback story. I went to TLA Video. They had disc two of season one. And I was like, eh, close enough. So I started with disc two of season one, which started with... Familia. This was the very first episode I ever watched. And mm. I thought to myself, I did not know TV could be good, which is funny. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more about that. We'll get into it. <laughs> We're going to get into time, it. I was stunned. Something about this show that is great, that has held up, is that characters are sketched very thoroughly in a Mm -hmm. very small amount of time. Yeah. So it was possible to jump in a little bit later and sort of know, like, oh, I see what Keith and David are all about. Like, I see what Nate and Brenda are about. Like, you could kind of get the broad sketches. But I did not know that the series started with their dad dying. Oh, boy. (laughs) Not really referenced in this episode. They they don't talk. Well, actually, yeah, that's true. His ghost doesn't show up at all in this episode. His ghost does not show up. Oh, that's right. To like your dad didn't have a business plan, but you don't know how long ago that was. Oh, yeah. So I was really in the dark. Well, let's let's talk about this episode. So this week we're talking about season one, episode four, Familia, which originally aired on June 24th, 2001. This episode is written by Lawrence Andres and directed by Lisa Cholodenko. By the way, Lisa Cholodenko um, is the director of the a movie I haven't seen, but I've heard is iconic, High Art. Yes, it's so good. She's mm. She directed High Art. She's directed The Kids Are All Right. Oh, wow. She directed Laurel Canyon. She's a really good director. So take us away with The Death of the Week. Um, so The Death of the Week, it almost feels like a, like a Law and Order like opening. Like, I haven't watched that much Law & Order, but it feels more like that than the sort of random, almost, not fun, but some of the some of the deaths on Six Feet Under are like, what's going to happen This here? is not a quirky death. This is not a quirky it's death. It's very procedural. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's a, a young um, Latinx couple in a car and in like a dark neighborhood at night. And I think what they have car troubles, right? Yes, yeah. there is a specific car trouble. And the 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 woman is Elizabeth Rodriguez, who is a great actress who is on Orange is the New Black. And oh, she, that's who yeah, she is. She's great. I knew she looked familiar. The the guy is um is Jacob Vargas, who uh, apparently is a regular on Luke Cage and Sons of Anarchy. Um so we're in the so we're in the car with these 
two lovebirds. May I ask what we're going to call him throughout this episode? Oh, because he has two names. He has two names. I think we, I mean, Paco. I think we should call him Paco. Paco Everybody calls him Paco. You need to be called by the name that you chose yourself. Call me by your name. Call call me by my name. So uh, the the man in the car goes to a payphone because this is 2001 and only... A select few people have cell phones, I guess. There's one right there, too. There's a payphone conveniently 40 feet from where their car is. Um, and anyway, uh, he goes to the payphone, and he's calling uh, for somebody to pick them up. And then uh, a guy points a gun at his head, and there's three guys behind him. And one of the guys asks him, uh, where are you from? And he responds, your mama's pussy, bitch. And then mm-hmm. the guy shoots him. And we kind of get the point of view of his girlfriend watching from the car. And then the white screen, uh, R.A.P. Manuel Pedro Antonio Bolin, uh, 1980 to 2001. So we we see Nate being interviewed by the police. We alternate with Brenda being interbu- interviewed by police, and we go back and forth between them. Uh, they are being interviewed by one of the guys from Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They're, they're being uh, interviewed by Hank. Um, and they're being interviewed about the time they spent in the house that caught fire in the last episode. So they're being interviewed about why they were there, how they conducted themselves when they were there. And, and the answer is sex. And the answer is sex. Depending but, on who you ask, they fucked or they made love. Um, <laughs> I think that Nail- Nate should have to go to jail because he said make love, <laughs> which is automatic jail or me. I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to not get in trouble with the cops, but I, I still hate it. He's also wearing a dark suit, and I feel like this is like the first time we've seen Nate wear a dark suit out of outside of work. Yeah, that's uh, true. Normally he's wearing uh, grody Nate clothes, but he's 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 dressed up. He's he's on his best behavior. He uh, he says that Gilardi tipped off the cops, and it's confusing to me about how that happened. Also, so I think like how the cops got to know that they needed to interview Nate and Brenda is all very confusing. Yeah, I don't know. Well, and specifically, like, how would Gilardi know that Nate and Brenda were in the house? Yeah, unless they had security cameras in this busted old house that they bought yesterday. The timeline of this whole house thing (laughs) is nuts. I, too, wondered how Brenda got roped into this. Maybe Nate said, like, hey, you also need to talk to my girlfriend, which is terrible. Like, why would you tell the police? Yeah, it's unclear. At the end of this episode, Nate also says, do I need a lawyer? And I just want to say, as a PSA, the answer is yes. If you're in a police station and you're being interviewed by the cops, yes, you need a lawyer. Yes. Nate and Brenda should not have talked to those cops. She was also mildly harassed by Hank from Breaking Bad. Yeah. When he's like, tell me everything. And his female partner is just, I don't know what she's doing. She just leans back. She's like, let's have it. Brenda, this whole episode is just like, I'm wearing red and I'm a femme fatale and like it's going to start with the cops. Yeah, Brenda's horny in this episode. <laughs> she really is. Uh, yeah. just, just to break it down. It does it does kind of have the tone of like one of the fantasy sequences. And yes. you're like waiting for it to break and it never does. Yeah. By the end of this little uh back and forth they're both free to go and but the police are sort of like we'll call you if we if we need you well and they also suggest not only that nate could have set the fire but that claire could have set the fire yeah right keith did not do a great job of keeping claire's name out of the foot incident right they apparently know everything yeah. mm-hmm. i think we learned in this episode he might be a bad cop <laughs> I, I think keith is like possibly a very bad cop so in the next scene David and Ruth are outside the funeral home watching who we will come to learn is Matthew McConaughey put in (laughs) an air conditioning unit. It's not really Matthew McConaughey. Um, But they... It's like if you like bought like a Matthew McConaughey knockoff at a dollar store and it was like labeled Matthew McConaughey, but you knew it wasn't. (laughs) I'll give him this. He does look like he puts in air conditioners in Los Angeles, California. He does look like that. He's very well cast. They say it's going to cost $4,000 to put in a new central air conditioning system, which seems cheap to me. Extremely cheap. I know the size of that house? Yes. David also makes a really terrible joke that I just want to call him out for because uh, Ruth says uh, we can get by without C- without AC. People do. And he says, yeah, people in the third world. Oof. Oh. Really good one, David. David Oof. is Solid. just a, a wall-to-wall nightmare in this episode. Yeah, this is a tough, this is tough for two. I disagree David. with that, but we'll get into it. So Nate shows up. Uh, 
and then he he tells us that Matt Gillardi tipped the cops off um, and Nate asks where Claire is which people should be doing at all times but <laughs> Nate actually in this episode does seem to be he and Keith I guess are the ones who care about what is going on with Claire David does not seem to care about what's going on with Claire Ruth certainly doesn't seem to care about what's going on with Claire she kind of does by the end sure I, but I would argue also that that Nate in the beginning part of this episode less cares about what's going on with Claire for her well-being and more to be like she's a crime girl yeah I agree with that I think Nate Nate's attention is is very self-serving like Nate's yeah. Nate's just like I have a problem and girl is problem so then uh, Matthew McConaughey says that he can put in the uh, air conditioning in like five days. Ruth sasses him a little about doing it in three. And then, you know, we're off to the off to the races. It's, there. Our, it's Ruth as negotiator, which I feel is significant to this episode. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That's true. Um, and then we go to what I am calling in my head the crying room. Manny's slash Paco's parents and um, Manny slash Paco's gang leader are making funeral arrangements for him, and it's very tense. Oh, the dude from the gang is named Powerful. Manny's parents call him Manny. Um, Powerful calls him Paco and says it's his gang name. Powerful wants to pay for it, and he has uh, a bunch of cash. And we cut to Rico curling a corpse's hair, which I just thought was very funny. Um, And uh, David comes down and asks him to run interference upstairs. Uh, he's just vaguely racist. Not vaguely. No, no he's, he's openly out, he's, racist. Sh- out he is, and out racist. He is, David is racist at Rico is what I wrote down in my notes. He says they want a traditional Mexican funeral is the, the phrasing he uses. And Rico's like, okay, I'm Puerto Rican. Like, we've worked together a long time. You should know this. Well, he also says, wouldn't somebody in your family know about gangs? Yes. Yep. Rico is like, why would I know about this? And... David's like, well, I wouldn't know about it and just sort of like vaguely gestures at being white. There's so much going on here too because because the because Mr. Powerful is written so like stereotypically. Mm-hmm. He says he wants a fat ass funeral if you can do it upright. He says upright like it's one word, although I wonder if it was written up right, like if you can do it up right, but he says upright, which I Maybe found to be a very strange. Maybe he wants the body to reading. be upright. <laughs> He's like no That's lying down. At the I funeral. made an assumption that he wanted it done upright. <laughs> upright. It almost felt like a tiny pushback from the actor. He's like, if this is the dialogue, <laughs> this is the way I'm going to say it, and this is on you guys because yeah, you allowed fair. this to happen. That is fair. This is this episode. We're going to keep getting into it. Is the writing of the episode itself racist? Is it showing the racial blind spots to be super charitable? Of the fi- Is it showing these blind spots of the Fishers, of the white characters on this show? I feel like what they thought they were doing was, was you know, they were obviously writing David to be super racist in this scene. Yes. And they play it super big, like with the gesture to his face and like, but it's like very clear, obvious stuff. I mean, okay, maybe he doesn't need to know that Rico is Puerto Rican, but Rico also says, like, I've been working here for so long and yeah. you know nothing about me, which I think bears out over the course of, of this season. Well, the other interesting thing about this this episode is um, the writer Lawrence Andrews is actually um, a black man. So it's our first episode not written by a white person. Um, and yet it has, I don't know, it's very complicated because it is definitely, like, about David in particular, but the Fishers in general, being ignorant about other races at best and just flat out racist well also living in los angeles and Mm -hmm. not having any sense of how to interact with latinx people Mm -hmm. is that's a real look this is not an isolated city where you would not be interacting with people of many different races and creeds but especially like it is a has a huge latinx population and your employee and then we have this i mean way later in the episode but the moment that Claire has with a member of the gang is also it's not quite as egregious as how David and Nate you know handle the handle this family and and the the gang members it's interesting to like kind of view it through the lens of now right like because I remember watching this episode back in the day um and just not even thinking about it no oh this must be how the world is I feel like watching this from a very from a position of privilege where you you're like, well, if we make a joke about it, if we if we if we identify if, if David gestures to himself, if they point out that, oh, they're so white, they're too white to deal with this, these non-white people, then we as white people get to be like, oh, OK, so we're acknowledging that there's differences. Right. So that's that's all it is. Right. We just need to acknowledge that we're different. Great. Got it. 
check. I did it. <laughs> I mean, perform. It's performative wokeness. Yeah, which yeah, is, for sure. Which is a very 2019 sort of deal, actually. It's um, true. Ahead of it, ahead of its time, and also very of its time. Um, so we we go to Rico showing the parents and powerful a really nice casket. Um, and powerful asks Rico where he's from heavy on the quotation marks which is the same thing that you know was said by the gang member who killed Manny in the first scene and Rico gestures him to go to a, a different crying room this is a side room where this is actually the crying room this is the oh. this is the place where they pull funeral goers who are having a scene we've seen this a couple of times but we've mostly seen it to be used for plot asides <laughs> what I find funny about it is that it's curtained and they treat it like it's a separate room like they go out they go to the they go to this curtained area and they have a conversation at full voice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then walk out like we're good did yeah. it no one else is listening no one else heard that no one else heard it to, to yeah. be fair earlier in the episode you had you had uh nate leaning over to david in the kitchen while ruth is like standing four feet away from them saying saying claire had meth and and ruth is like if you want to have a conversation i can't hear you should go into a different that's, room that's the next scene <laughs> oh it's the next scene oh yeah all right but what the other thing i like about this scene is that you you know so David brought Rico up because he decided he needed a person of color to talk to another person of color. But then what you actually see is that David needed somebody aggressive to talk to somebody else aggressive. It's pretty funny that Rico is the most aggressive person. He's in so this. tiny. He's yeah. so tiny, and he has when that conversation is over and powerful leaves, you see him just like relax I actually love that moment and I think it's a really strong moment Freddy Rodriguez does such a good job yeah in this he episode. Does. where you're just like he got he got his adrenaline up and he was going and then he just like completely like goes limp like a noodle like it's it's really a wonderful little moment but I think as this epic episode progresses uh the show kind of suggests that David's real issue is not necessarily that he's racist but that he has some like really deep masculinity issues yes and i think he um associates a lot of like machismo with these gang members i mean to be clear he is also racist he's also <laughs> racist yes <laughs> i think if it was just the parents he wouldn't have had rico come upstairs mm -hmm. if powerful hadn't been i agree there. it's yeah it's it's not it's not just the cultural difference. Uh, so then in the next scene, <laughs> which we've talked about, Nate and David talk and Nate says our favorite line of the episode. David, we are so white. If we step in, we will totally fuck up. Um, this is my new ringtone. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I will be beaten up in the subway for it. <laughs> Amazing. And I'm fine with it. Um, Nate and David talk about the funeral, and then Nate is still worried about uh, about Claire. Uh, David's going to do some errands. He won't tell anyone what the errands are. David's also super not worried about Claire. <laughs> he really doesn't care her about lo her. his logic. Uh, the reason that Claire wouldn't set the fire is because uh, she would never help them because she hates them, <laughs> which is such a, it's a difference between the brother who stayed and the brother who went. David's like, this has happened all the time. Like she is, she hates us so much. She would never participate in this family at all. David's like, I wish she'd set the fire. I know <laughs> that she loved me. Finally. Um. So Claire, speak of the devil, Claire enters. She looks amazing. She's pulling off that leather skirt. So oh my good. God. She's pretty hyper in this episode. Doesn't she seem like she's on crack? <laughs> Look, Nate, calm down, Nate. This is, I believe, the first episode we've had, except for when they're when she's down um, in the uh, embalming room with the the gang member. Uh, this is the only time we don't see her. We don't see her doing anything. Like everything we see is from the brothers or Ruth's perspective. This is also a narrative trick that this show loves, I think, and will repeat many times. Is this is the idea where some characters in the episode uh, believe something about another character, and so that character is almost not in the episode, so that they can project as much as possible um, to get to the next step. Um, in the next scene, Keith and David are grocery shopping, and they're talking about Paco's funeral, Paco slash Manny's funeral. Keith also suggests that Claire gets a lawyer. I just want to say shout out to Keith, a cop, for suggesting a lawyer. Yep, yep. Keith is 
again, Keith is taking better care of Claire than anybody in the family. Um, so then a dude listening to Limp Biscuit is in a car and he watches them. He's watching them really impatiently, unloading their groceries into the car. And then uh, when they don't go fast enough, he calls them fags. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the slur. Oh, no. But I do agree that Keith arranged those groceries for 4,000 years. <laughs> he is. It is such a long bit of business. That's true. There is a lot of like, let me just move the cooler a quarter of an inch so yeah. I can put this. Oh, just throw them in the back. Maybe. How far are you going? Where is this grocery store? Did you drive to the other side of town? I don't know. It's a bold move to call somebody a fag and then just kind of roll three feet away from them. <laughs> stop at your car um Keith is terrifying I don't know why you would ever Mm -hmm. I would never I mean I would not do this anyway but I would never harass somebody who was as giant as Keith Keith's arms are like the size of my torso so Keith runs after his car and roughs the dude up and it's awesome you like disagree it's 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 rough. It's like, part of me is like, yes, like stand up for yourself and like defend your rights as a gay man. But another part of me is like, don't like stick your badge in some guy's face. Well, that's true. The co- I don't like the cop angle of it. If Keith were not a cop, I would like this a lot more. I think that this is horrifying. I think that Keith yelling at him is great. I think that Keith being a cop and using the cop thing is extremely bad. I think especially because he's LAPD. I think yeah, that's the, true. The riots are referenced later in this episode. Oh God, that's right. Um, yeah, uh, and I, you know, honestly, I don't know if you guys have talked about this at all, but like choosing to have your uh, one of your primary characters of color be a cop um, is a really strange choice to me in this show. We have not talked about it yet. We're I think it's going to be an ongoing yeah. Yeah, conversation, and this is really I know that Keith helped Claire in the last episode in his capacity as a police officer but we don't this is the first time that I think that it's really in our and then later in the episode Keith talks about being a cop right and you know what being gay means to him being a LAPD officer but so this is really the first episode where we're hearing Keith's perspective on it and where it's it's really integral to everything that's happening in this plot for sure and I don't like how he shoved David yes I don't like that he shoved David at all and I think I think later on uh, we watch David kind of process this whole thing from a couple of different angles and I think uh what what sort of Keith never acknowledges is that this was not an okay thing to do like it might connect to a lot of other issues that David does have and I think I think Keith's uh impatience with those things is valid but I think for him to be very righteous about this particular incident is is a weird choice for him. Uh, so in the next scene, David is with Paco's corpse. This is our first talking corpse that's not Nate Sr. I wrote down in my notes the ghost of toxic masculinity. That's great. <laughs> Would Thanks. it were truly dead. That's the name of my podcast, and I <laughs> hope you guys will be ghosts. I mean, guess. <laughs> I just want to uh, call this out that 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 this particular corpse is also coming from inside of David's head because I think that it is a very uh, confusing time for David and he is using this sort of like he's got he's just conflating so many issues he's conflating race he's conflating masculinity he's conflating gender he's conflating uh, aggression like he mm-hmm. just everything he's just a soup I do want to say that. Um, Paco's ghost accuses David of looking at his dick. And uh, also note that just David's ghosts are homophobic. David's ghosts are incredibly homophobic. Yeah. That's, I mean, we're two for two. Keith Keith just told David that he hates himself. Brenda shows up for dinner. An hour she, early. An hour early. She looks amazing and she's wearing a pashmina because it is the year 2000. She's wearing like a black slip dress, but it's very tight. It's and very it femme like fatale. It is. Which is sort of how Ruth sees her, I think. Well, we'll get into how Ruth sees her. Um, And and also because she shows up an hour early, the other Fishers, if they were going to dress for dinner, have not dressed for dinner. So Nate answers the door wearing just the scummiest looking clothing. (laughs) Like, I think maybe, like, the actor wore these pants to set and they were like, we don't have anything else that fits you right now. (laughs) This is, it's just going to have to be these. There's also um, a moment when when Brenda first sees the house 
Um, and, you know, she kind of notes its general morbidity. And, um, and Nate says that he and David used to play Adam's family when they were kids. And that Nate was always Gomez and David was always Lurch. <laughs> like, who on purpose would play Lurch every time? So... In this next scene, uh, we're back with the chatty corpse of Paco. So David is talking to um, the corpse about his, or the, rather the corpse is talking to him, but really it's just David talking to himself um, about his um, self-loathing in regards to the guy who called them fags. Um, and I don't know if either of you guys have like biblical insight. I do, actually. You do? I do actually have Great. biblical insight. There's a point when the corpse quotes the Bible. He says, um, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. And they said unto him, art not thou one one of his disciples too? He denied it and said, I am not. So this is Peter's second denial of Jesus. Uh, Some of you may or may not remember or know in Sunday school. I I know. All right. Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times. This is the second denial. Really, it's like, it's about... All of the things that you do when you know something is true. Peter knew that Jesus was good and was Christ, uh, but he still, in in public to other people, said, "And eh, I don't know that guy." Um, so it is it is you're extrapolating out to uh, to David's own denial of himself. Wow! How about that? Oh my God! Yeah, I also really like um, the David Church storylines. I find them to be interesting. I love that Keith and David met in church. Yeah, I love that we get to see that church later in this episode. Yes, I was going to say that's one of my favorite parts of this episode. I think it's a I think it's a nice detail. So in this next scene, we go back to Nate and Brenda. Um, Nate is really stressed out, and Brenda is. Uh, psychologizing <laughs> is that how we pronounce that this is psychologizing a, this is a scene they've had several times right yes like, by, like even by episode four yes this is the only conversation nate and brenda ever have nate says i'm sad and brenda says tell me about it then and they have sex oh so this is the scene where nate uh says that uh his father called his ability to channel other people's pain a gift nate told himself that it was a gift through the psychological projection of his dead father. Do we think Nate Sr. told him that another time? No. Ever? No, no I, I do not so. think so okay. at all. Like, no. not in the past. Not like no. when he was, like, 18 and, like, running away. I can't imagine that Nate Sr. ever complimented him on anything that matters. He wanted his father to think this about him. It, it's rough, too, because he's, like, in the previous scene, the intake scene, between him and David, he is the more sympathetic of the two. David's like, if you don't have money... Uh, get out of here and yeah. it's like uh, oh it's really hard to lo- lose a child but like it doesn't it's not like the most empathetic thing that's ever no. been said that we haven't really seen a great demonstration of Nate being really great with other people's pain in that's my true. opinion that's very true Nate loves like hugging a stranger though like not he not, does not he does love he... to touch people and speaking of Nate loving a touch <laughs> um, <laughs> we see Ruth walking toward the Whatever room they're in, they're not in the crying room. They're in the main room. It's like room. the casket room. And I'm like, Ruth, don't go in there. Ruth, don't go in there. Like a Why horror movie. Why does she go? It is like a horror movie. Why does she go in there? I think she almost knows what's happening underneath it all. And I don't know. I think she chooses it. It's so weird. I do think all the Fishers have a certain uh, ridiculous innocence about them. You see it in mm-hmm. this episode with David sort of being blithely racist and not knowing that he's not <laughs> supposed to be racist. Yeah. You see it here. I mean, I, I guess Brenda's is right. I guess they all do like, you know, they, they, they compartmentalize so mm-hmm. deeply that I do think it's possible that the mother of all of them would, would sort of wander down with no, yeah. no conscious understanding of what's about to happen. But and then see it and just scream and break a glass. And break a or a vase. I really like Rachel Griffith's little half shrug at the end of this episode. Yeah, I do too. When, uh, when Nate looks up and he's so upset and he looks like garbage. And uh, <laughs> Brenda's like, meh, is what it is. So the next scene is the dinner. And everybody is sort of being super quiet. Nate and Brenda are. David's quiet. And Claire is coming in real hot at Brenda. Mm-hmm. So giddy in this scene. Yeah. And she just like, well, she's she's like, oh, my God, someone to talk to who's not these fucking people. <laughs> yeah. And Brenda's cool. I mean, like, objectively, Brenda's cool. She really is kind of trying to not ingratiate herself, but she's trying to, like, B 
be buddies with Brenda, she's, and Brenda's like not interested in she's it. She's trying to be. I mean, it's like the thing of like she's being a teenager. Yeah, she's been like, oh my god, there's like a cool older lady, and yeah. and Brenda's like, I have no interest in anything remotely related to a child. Yes, it's the same energy she brings to the conversation with the gang member later. Like it's yes. this very like it's it's very yeah. pure in its way, and it's also very similar to David being casually racist. Ruth asks Nate to say grace, which is real power move in this particular family it's such a gesture david's like i'm right here or i don't know doesn't somebody say that claire oh, nate's like wouldn't david oh, yeah. rather <laughs> yeah david doesn't care david is david wishes he wasn't there david's hardcore. like you guys want to hear uh, john 1825 <laughs> or david's like i can't bring my boyfriend to dinner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's true i have in my notes for this dinner gloriously tense brenda's not trying to get anyone to like her at all no no she also walked in saying your mother hates me i don't care yeah Mm -hmm. she does care obviously she clearly cares yeah i feel like many people if that had happened would just immediately leave and not have dinner would you have dinner poll quick Mm. poll in the event that my boyfriend was going down on me in his childhood home before a dinner with his mother no i would leave i would also leave Guys, I might stay. (laughs) Not because I just might be like, is it worse if they're like talking about? Because they'd definitely be talking about me at the dinner. What I would do is I would want to stay and try to erase that memory by being very nice and personable, not by being super pouty and mean like Brenda is being. Mm. Um, In the next scene, um, David is chatting with the corpse. In this scene, so you have... Paco's corpse and then you also have Paco standing looking down at his corpse yeah so and David saying you shouldn't have gone and got yourself shot oh my god I just wanted to slap him David is I do think that when he does I mean it's not great when he's like you shouldn't have gotten yourself shot but it feels like he's practicing like the masculinity he's like yeah I can I can do a comeback um, and then this is where Ruth comes down and says, Mr. Powerful is here, which I really love. There's a, an iconic exchange between Ruth and David where uh, David, who is who is get it, who is kind of like becoming throughout the episode, kind of more confident about talking about his relationship with Keith um, in as much as he can. Ruth asks why she doesn't why he doesn't come to church with her anymore. And he says, I go to a different church now. And she says, with your friend that cop, the black man. And then there's this moment where he just goes, yes, mom, the cop, the black man, like really fast. And it's just... After Paco goes, says, don't be a pussy. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Again, bringing back some iconic words. I feel like when Ruth leaves, she doesn't say anything else, but but Frances Conroy does such a great job. Like she shows you in that moment, there's so much she doesn't understand about her sons. And she's got one kid left. Who she doesn't... Who she knows even less. Yeah. She knows even less. Speaking of her third child, uh, Claire is hanging out at this funeral, question mark? Like, why is Claire there? Right? Does she just, like, decide to just drop in sometimes on funerals because she's bored? I mean, actually, I could totally see doing that. She is flirting with uh, a gang member who... Uh, Amazon, that weird little thing that pops up when you watch these things on Amazon, told me his name is Luis. So then Paco's mother sort of loses her mind. And then as this is happening, uh, Claire leaves with Luis. um, To go to the embalming room. To go to the embalming room. And in the next, so in this very next scene, they smoke some weed that Luis has given her. And Claire asks Luis if he's killed people. Um, Also, he looks a lot like Gabe. He does. Claire has a type. yeah, Yeah, the casting is good. She's really trying to be tough and uh, treating him like a science experiment in a racist way. Yeah. She's just like, just like, what's it like to shoot a gun? Like, can I come down to the neighborhood sometime? And he calls her out on her bullshit, which should happen. Yes. He also is like smoking out a teenager at his friend's funeral. So there's, there's blame on both sides, but there's more blame on her side yeah. <laughs> is what I'm going to say he's, for that. He's a little harsh, I would say. Yes, yeah. he is. Cause she, and I think, but I think. I only think he's harsh because I know Claire is genuine in her stupidity. Yes. And she thinks she's flirting. Right. Yeah. She thinks that she's like, ooh, big man, but it's real. But it's real. I think she doesn't really actually know how real it is. She also might not know how his friend died. 
Like, yes. That's true. She also, in this scene, reveals that she knows that everybody thinks that she burned down the house. Right. And that she's kind of enjoying it. Yeah, that's interesting to me. And then, so in this next scene, Tracy Montrose Blair shows up to the funeral home, and she was in the, she's in the pilot as the woman who's, uh, David screams at, at the funeral after Nate Sr. dies. Um, And this scene is, really strange because she's like going she talks about the she's the one who talks about the riots Mm -hmm. and she talks about like innocents losing their lives and she wants to pay her respects it's very strange when she's talking about the riots i mean the uprising increase the peace more dead children i think i think that's supposed to indicate that she is flailing that she doesn't really have an explanation for why she's there i don't think any of the content of that is is important i think it's just her just like oh, no, I don't have I just I just know, I just know a lot of people I, I love funerals funerals are just great yeah and it's yeah it's one more opportunity to show a white person being sort of blithely stupid about race I think yeah and yeah. just like wh- even though I know she makes it up on the fly but who would would she think she's gonna walk in there and like that the the entire family is not gonna be like what the fuck are you doing here she's a she's a real weirdo. Um, so in the next scene, Nate comforts Paco slash Manny's mother. Um, and this is the first time we've seen Nate embracing this side of himself. And it feels more natural. Mm-hmm. And he talks about Nate Sr. and his grief over losing him in a very non-self-aggrandizing way that actually seems to help yeah. Manny's mother. He, he genuinely, you know, is like... I'm going to tell you about a thing about my life that relates to something about your life for the purpose of helping you. Yes. Which is a big step for Nate. She also asks him, uh, why did God do this? Which is, is interesting uh, just to draw it back to the sort of religion that we see throughout this episode, mm-hmm. uh, kind of echoing Ruth asking Nate to do the blessing. Uh, and also, uh, you know, this idea that um, the fishers are maybe a church going people, but sort of divided and split in some yeah. ways to, to actually have somebody sort of straight up treating Nate as a priest in this moment uh, yeah. is, is interesting. I mean, it's also interesting. I was thinking when, when Ruth keeps asking David, why don't you come to church with me? She never wa- even thinks to, to try to get Nate to come to church with her. Right? Or, or Claire. Claire. Or yeah. Claire. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was like, that would be the person you think that she would be able to kind of get to go with her i feel like there's some like unspoken backstory you've never seen about claire refusing to go to church and putting her foot down when she's like 14 or something so we we're back at the funeral and uh david is standing with his buddy manny the ghost yes who has sort of become i you know like the kind of like the trope of like the magical negro quote i do know i do know about that i feel like in this episode manny is kind of david's like magical latino man who's like who's Oof. like let me like support you in your bullshit and then like push you but like in a gentle way tough love tough love yeah because there's a part here a really really bad heaven can't david he's straight up like like man i'm really disappointed that there wasn't any like gunfire uh, or fights at this you know at this funeral and you know manny is sort of like yeah bro like i mean i'm paraphrasing <laughs> clearly <laughs> yeah David's really got his like his ideas of masculinity super twisted in this moment, I think, because yeah. he he expected like a lot more aggression from from uh, this funeral. He expected that uh, there would be like an out and out war, I guess. Yeah. And he also like in this in this moment, um, Paco says to him, apologize to your boy, Keith, or you're a born bitch. Um, which is like the 40th time he's his had ghost Paco say bitch to him back mm-hmm. to him. Like he, David, I guess needs uh, a version of an aggressive male to tell him what to do. Yes. It, yeah. He's almost acting as like a, like a weird father figure to David. Well, he's acting like an older brother. Yeah. Mm. Oh, he is. He's acting like the older brother. Yeah. So then we get um, Ruth and Nate um, on the stairs, uh, and Ruth says that the detective called, and I don't know about these detectives and their detective skills. Why are they calling Ruth? I don't know why Ruth is on this phone tree, Yeah, so the, 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 the detectives apparently called Ruth to say that the cause of the house fire was declared unknown and the case was closed. <laughs> Just normal cop stuff, everybody. Normal detective stuff. 
and crazy. And Nate still thinks Claire did it, and Ruth is giving Claire the benefit of the doubt, and um, and doesn't think that she did. Uh, and then Nate also apologizes for what happened with Brenda, which he should. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ruth uh, doesn't want to talk about it. Yep. Which again, fair. But then Claire shows up. Yes. And uh, and everybody's like, where were you? And Claire says, none of your business. When did this become a police state? Because she's a teenager. I think I think Ruth is terrified of Claire. Yes, that's true. I think I think she like feels distant from her sons, but I think she is scared to death of Claire. Well, and it is interesting the way Ruth sort of scares Nate and David mm-hmm. or it doesn't scare them, but like they are worried about what she thinks of them. Well, and there's actually and Claire don't doesn't give a fuck. I I don't I don't think we brought this up at, at the dinner scene earlier, but they but uh, Nate and David bring up to Ruth like that we want to talk about our business plan for the funeral home, right? And Ruth says, "Why do you need to talk to me about that? Like I don't need to be involved." Yeah, but they want they're they're kind of mama's boys. They are. They want her approval. Um, we can we talk about David and Keith's church with their cool lesbian pastor? <laughs> <laughs> just really excited about it. I just love and their it. ASL interpreter. Yes! Oh my god! It's a good good church, and there's like a gay pride flag in the background. And I'm curious about this homily. I feel like you might have a good interpretation of this since you well, interpreted that John quote. Not a homily. Oh, it's not a homily because they're not Catholic, right? Um, you know, I actually f- I find sermons much harder to parse than Bible verses. But basically, uh, the pastor is like uh, the problem in the Garden of Eden was that they didn't trust God. Uh, they trusted the serpent. When the serpent told them lies, they were like, yeah, li- those lies seem good. So, uh, you know, we're not going to go back to God. We're not going to ask him what the deal is. Um, and I think, I-, I guess this is supposed to relate to David not trusting Keith or knowledge or truth. David not trusting truth. I David guess not trusting, is, period? David not trusting. Mm-hmm. I think this one's a little bit of a stretch. I think the Bible verse earlier was a lot better. I guess I appreciate that the sermon is not direct. It's not like, here, this is how it relates to this issue in this episode. But I was also like, how does this relate? What's going on? Ooh, I just thought of a new interpretation. Oh, But it, it it's just me fitting this to want things to be true. Fit it. So the surface level interpretation of the sermon might be that David doesn't trust himself. Uh, he does he he does not know how to fully respond to a truth when it is presented to him. He doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie. Um, but there might be another uh, level of interpretation, which is perhaps Keith is the serpent. Perhaps Keith is somebody who is giving him some flawed information about um, masculinity and sex mm. and uh, uh, preference. Um, and perhaps David is going to choose to trust that. He's going to choose to trust this like very tempting serpent instead of perhaps finding his own way to his own sexuality perhaps a servant is toxic masculinity whoa so david outside of the church after this uh sermon uh david apologizes to keith and keith will not uh, apologize back and keith tells david that he won't move backwards what he says i think is actually really sweet he says i'll wait for you because i love you but i'm not moving backwards for anybody yeah and, like, again, I, I wish he'd have a little more patience with David, but I also completely get where he's coming from. Well, his the case he makes is compelling about, like, and what he says about, like, being a police officer and not being sure mm-hmm. if people will be there to save him if something goes wrong. Like, yeah. that is, that's intense. And it sort of, it does show how, like, the way that he, you know, in the scene where he puts his badge on the dude's forehead that that's the power that he has I mean he also has the power of like he is a very big dude but the power that he has is this position as a cop that's he doesn't even feel secure in that mm-hmm. like he doesn't feel like secure with his fellow his fellow officers he's met toxic masculinity with more toxic masculinity yes. it's like yes. they, like they they screwed with me so I just became worse Megan we've tra- you've brought this up Literally, what day is it? Because it is Sunday, but David says that this oh, happened church. yesterday. Okay, yeah. It has been so long, narratively, since this thing happened. So, day one, intake day. Okay. Claire comes home from school. A Friday? A school day. Let's say a Friday. 
Uh, they. I feel like we need a whiteboard for this. <laughs> I feel like you need a red string for this. Uh, they're in the kitchen. David says he has to run errands. The errand is t- to go watch his boyfriend yell at somebody. Yep. Uh, they have dinner that night. Uh, Wait, is this a Friday? That's a Friday. That all happens on but Friday. he said yesterday on right. a Sunday. Day two is the funeral. Uh-huh. Put a pin in that. Okay. <laughs> Everybody is wearing certain clothes at that funeral. I checked. Uh, we find out that the cops call Ruth all the time and tell her what's up with the latest cases. <laughs> on a Saturday. I know crime Saturday. sleeps for nothing, but honestly. Exactly. And then day three, Sunday, everyone's at church. Okay. Well, so David, the script, the continuity person really screwed up here because david says yesterday which was saturday the timeline of this episode is is super crazy um so in the next scene we have brenda and nate uh and brenda wants to in the morning like kind of like nate's waking up and brenda's like sitting by the window reading a newspaper she looks great by the way she looks she looks great um she she asks nate if she should make a peace offering to ruth Oh yeah, um, and he says no. Yeah, and then and then she says this line that is just like, ev- like at least once an episode, Brenda has to say the theme of the show. Um, yes. So she says, "No accident, or it's no accident. You guys are undertakers. You take every fucking feeling you have, put it in the box, and bury it." And I'm like, mm-hmm. "Yes, that is uh, the logline of the show, Brenda. Good job." Yeah. Um. So in the next scene, Nate comes home. I guess from this <laughs> again. What day is it? But it comes from this, and uh, for, watches Claire watch the Partridge Family. So Claire, so he asks her if she's doing okay. Which, like, thank God. I mean, it's 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 a little. It feels a little half-hearted, but he does ask her, and she like sasses him and says like that her pimp is bothering her, and Nate calls asks her why she has to be such a bitch all the time and that is a real zero to 60 he should not have said that i would say this is the heaven can't nate oh fair like, mm-hmm. because i think he's actually still mad about brenda and i think he comes in and he's like well i'm gonna solve the family's problems by questioning my little sister because that's like i'm i'm the empathetic one and then he starts all empathetic all channeling feelings yeah. and then can't do it immediately yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. she pushes back a little she's 16 mm-hmm. he's like why you gotta be such a bitch well and she she asks why he has to naturally assume that she's in trouble which i feel like is kind of the Very whole valid. thing of this episode she's been she's been kind of like interested in kind of playing with her family's expectations of her but now i think she's kind of done with it so nate and david sit down with ruth uh to go over their business plan and uh, I guess it's a good business plan. They basically want to fix stuff in the house, which seems like a good, and they want to be able to compete with Kroner um, and get everything up to speed in the house for which they will need $93,000. And they also basically say that they, the thing that they feel that they have an edge over Kroner with is that they have like, you know, integrity and a human touch versus Kroner, which is much more of an assembly line style of funerals. Definitely, and but I do wish that they would mention Rico because yeah. he is such a big. It's been established that he is amazing at his job. He's like a great restorative artist. I mean, they completely don't appreciate Rico, and I th- and I think that's something that's going to just keep happening until it comes to a head, yeah. basically. But um, but so they they need this money, and I do just want to b- remind us that Ruth just lost twenty five thousand dollars in the last episode and doesn't seem to miss it particularly i mean it has not affected her quality of life in any way life insurance policy uh ruth wants to doesn't want to loan them this ninety three thousand dollars she wants to be an investor and she has she like knows how to talk about investing yeah she says she'd rather invest in her sons and i think she says tech stocks which i was like damn ruth I like that she surprises Nate and David with her finance lingo and also that she <laughs> stone cold bribes David into going to church with her and asks nothing of Nate. And then they, they mentioned that, that uh, Gilardi from Kroner has asked to meet with them and they don't know why. That, that afternoon, a- which is Sunday. I think it's now Monday. I don't think so. Question mark. It's the same day. Um. So, David is still being advised by the corpse of Paco. Who's now wearing, like, regular street clothes as opposed to his um, funeral suit. I wrote down Paco strangles him? Is that true? Yeah. Yep. Oh, boy. Paco shows him how to intimidate somebody. Oh, yes, that's right. They're preparing for lunch with Gilardi, and right. David is, like, reaching if, if like, his, like, toxic masculinity journey is, like, uh, like going up a, a roller coaster. He's, like, kind of, like, getting toward the top of the hill here. 
He has one more like pushback, which is you stepped up and look what happened to you. Paco's like, yeah, I lived my life like a man, which I guess is an argument. And then he says, when are you going to start? Yeah. Like, rough. Oh, man. That is rough. It, it's actually the, the idea of masculinity is very like fight club. It, it, it is that sort of like pre 9-11 idea of like, of like, hey, you're a man and you're like lost in the world. Like how are you going to like reclaim your identity, which is tied up with your manhood? The idea that being a gay man who's coming out is a masculine thing to do. Mm. I think that was the thing that, that probably felt the most progressive yeah. that in yeah. fact, like David was attaining masculinity just by becoming himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think what now feels flawed is the idea that we have to think about masculinity at all, but yes. this sh- show brought a lot of this into the cultural conversation. I'd yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, having a character who is a gay man who is not necessarily the most masculine presenting gay man, but is still in his own way finding his power is a, is is a great way to, to to illustrate that there are many different types of homosexual characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um so then we go to Gilardi and Nate and David having like a diner lunch. Why does Matthew Gilardi care so much? He's I'm t- he's like Ahab with the Fishers. It's cr- like he's just like he basically he's like I'm coming to tell you that like if you don't accept my offer by the end of the day, I'm going to like personally make it my mission to bury you. It's so intense. David monologues at Matt Gillardi and calls him a spineless candy ass corporate fuck, which sounds like Nate. I know it's a very Nate line. And he uh, threatens, threatens him pretty hardcore and yeah. says he will uh, go after someone he loves when they least suspect it. There are tragedies far worse than death. Is he going to, what's he going to do? I know. It's so, it's like the biggest bluff in the world. And you can see like Nate watching it. Like it's just Peter Krause's face in this scene is just fantastic. I know. It's really good. I can't tell what the fuck's happening. I'm kind of horrified, but kind of delighted. I think that he freaks him out. Not so much what he's saying, but Nate is the one who's been kind of aggressive with Matt Gillardi. Mm -hmm. And so for David to be, and I think that he's thought David is the one who's going to cave. And for David to be the one who really, like, takes him and, you know, tears him a new one with his words mm-hmm. is is surprising to him. Um, I laughed so hard when he said, I think I'm going to throw up as soon as Matt already left. I loved that. This is actually, when you think about it, this is the second time we've seen somebody, like, when Rico earlier with um, Powerful does that thing of like I am going to act tough because this is what the situation calls for but like as soon as I don't have to like just all the energy is going to go out of my body totally and then uh Brenda shows up at Ruth's door with a gift box of bath stuff you think that this is going to be or I don't know I thought it was going to be a disaster and then it kind of works out Brenda's apology Ruth kind of accepts it and takes the bath salts and uh Brenda's also really, I wouldn't say she's super vulnerable, but she talks about how much she cares about Nate. Yeah, I was shocked by that admission from her. She says, I get a glimpse of things maybe working out for us, which Mm -hmm. is so vulnerable. It really is. In the next scene, what day is it? I believe it's still Sunday. No. I refuse. However. Are there like two day funerals? It is the second day of the funeral. Well, I think the first part was a wake. Mm -hmm. And this is the funeral, even though it's not a mass. Even though they are all wearing more casual clothes. But it is very confusing because it is just the smaller group of people. It's Sunday question mark. And uh, Powerful asks Rico to go get the Fishers. And then the family and the all the gang members ask the fishers to join them in prayer when powerful comes to get rico i think rico's really scared yeah and then his expectation is entirely subverted when they stand in a circle and powerful gives like a really sweet heartfelt speech with tears in his eyes and it actually like made me feel emotional and they pray for he's says they should pray for Nate Sr. I mean, he says their father. I kind of want to, I kind of wish we could have seen the conversation that happened off screen between Powerful and Manny's mother, where, because they have clearly, like, come to, um, you know, an agreement about how the morning should happen by the end of the scene. Does Paco tell David not to be a bitch? Yes. Great. I wrote that down, and then I was, and then I wrote yikes after it. Because Paco's in the circle with them. 
right and holding david's hand and, and david doesn't want to let go paco has to go he says he has to leave david so the ghost is leaving him and it, that's his last piece of advice for David. This whole scene to me, is, I did not care for. I think this sort of like, it's a very cheap subversion. I think it's, you know, oh, you thought they were tough gang members, but actually they're very compassionate Christians. It just, it d- feels oversimplified. Yeah. They're assuming that everybody watching the show is a white person and it hmm. it's rough. That's, yeah, it's it's true. I don't know that, I mean, I also see what you're saying, but this scene for me, like, I thought was very like emotionally resonant like you know up until the don't be a bitch David part now the next scene is actually very emotionally resonant yes (laughs) yes um David and Keith are bowling and David's really good at bowling I love it but I have a question because the next thing that happens is a man comes up to them and says hey you fellas together what was he getting at right I was like is he trying to figure out if he can also bowl in that lane right it doesn't make sense but that's not how bowling alleys work part way part way no. through i thought it was that and then part way through i thought the guy was like i want to find out if this is a gay couple and would which was what would be strange I'm just asking i'm just gonna go ask people if they're gay now <laughs> right could they have been trying to maybe they wanted to play a game with them is that how bowling alleys but that's work not, that's not the question you would ask okay you I, would say I'm hey guys want to bowl sense. together yeah I wrote David's coming in real hot with these guys, whatever is happening. I mean, yeah. you shouldn't ask people if they're together, but he, he's he's pretty aggressive. And then uh, the other the guys are like, okay, cool, and they leave. And Keith is real into David's. Uh, David's just like, yeah, like we're like it's it's a weird piece of business to get him to say that, but it is David's moment to be like, yes, public world, this is my boyfriend. A ghost taught me this. He told me not to be a little bitch. So David's storyline is done. And then then in the next scene, (laughs) Nate comes into Brenda's house. She's on the bed wearing a very strange nightgown. The candle game is out of control. Like I had a moment of like, so she's in a room, like in like a red nightgown surrounded by candles, like a, like a, a, a like WB in the nineties amount of candles. It's a very cruel intentions amount of candles. Uh, the weirdest thing about this scene, other than um, her Nehru collar, is that Nate comes in and is like, my mom loved the bath salts, oh and whips off his shirt, which I'm fine with. But like, he's like, the sexiest thing to Nate is like, ooh, you didn't alienate my mother. <laughs> then Nate, because there's so many candles around him, Nate realizes that Brenda might have burnt down the house. Well, Nate's never seen fire before. <laughs> the first time Nate ever saw fire was when the house burned down. And this is the second this time. This is the second time he's seen fire. Yeah. And so he's just re- he's just have... reminded of the first time he saw fire, which was 3 to f- 12 days ago. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have fire in Seattle. Do they have sex? I didn't write that down. It's hard to tell. Okay. But I, sure, I, I think they do. Yeah. I'm pretty sure every time Nate like has one of these memories, he's like, oh, no, this is bad. But I'm definitely going to have sex. Yeah. He rallies. He rallies. Nate, he does. Nate can have sex no matter what. Um, so in this last scene, you have Ruth alone in the funeral home. And Claire comes in. And Ruth has a question. <laughs> and that question is, did you set the fire in the house across the street? And Claire straight up says no, um, but that she maybe stole the foot. And she definitely stole the foot. It's like, it's just a really, I don't know. It's like a nice, straightforward little moment for Ruth and Claire. I, I just, think. does anybody think Claire did not steal the foot? Everyone knows she stole the foot. I think, I think what's important in this moment is that Claire is like demonstrating how honest she's being in Got that it. moment by confessing something else. That's fair. Yes. If you ask Brenda, I feel like she'd be like, what do you think, cowboy? Like, that she would not give you a direct answer. So lie when you're having sex, but tell the truth when it's your mother. Is that that's, the lesson of the Yeah, I think that's what this episode, episode? is Then it gets and confusing when, you're, when your mother walks into the room while you're having sex. Do you tell a lie or the truth? It depends on if she asks a direct question or not. Um, let's grade this episode. Oh. I give this episode a B. I... I'm going to be real rough, and I'm going to give this episode a C. Oh, it's the lowest so far. It's just, I don't know, there's so much about this episode that just made me, like, like have the full-body cringy shivers. 
Yeah, maybe I give it a B minus. I don't. But don't change your grade. You know. I will. <laughs> I will. I will change my grade. I will give the Paco's ghost stuff a C minus. That's and so much of the episode. Yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe I give this grade a. C, I don't know. Maybe I give it a C plus. Megan, what do you give it? And then I'll see if I'm changing. <laughs> like somewhere in the seas is accurate for this episode okay. it's funny again because i as as previously mentioned this was the episode that got me hooked into the show wow somehow but you know the the when, stuff here when i the first time i i watched this episode twice just so you guys just know i like prepared really hard amazing and the first time i watched it i was like wow terrible can't wait to hate this episode forever and then the second time i watched it i was like all right i see some i see some some dominant themes a- aside from the terrible timelining i think i got the bones of it and, and i think it's there i think i think the intentions of this episode are uh good i think the execution is is real bad so i think that's yeah. uh, that's c territory for me i'll change it and give it a c plus um great megan tell us where we can find you on social media if you want people to find you on social media <laughs> i think the only public account is on twitter uh i'm at megan derns that's m-e-g-h-a-n-d-r-r-n-s beautiful i um, i tweet sparingly but i try to put a lot of power behind it i would i would say that's how i perceive your twitter um thank you for joining us yeah thank you so I'm much i'm so happy to be here and i'm so happy you guys are doing this i and hope you will come back i would love to come back next week for links to everything we talked about today and more information about us visit our website at notoversfu.com if you liked the show please subscribe tell a friend about it and leave us a rating or a review on itunes or apple podcasts it helps people find the show you can write to us at notoversfu at gmail.com or give us a shout on Twitter at notoversfu. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Jenna, at Second Husk. You can find me, Caroline, at Caroline V. McGee. And you can find our producer, Allison Cherry, at, at Allison underscore Cherry. That's one L in Allison. Our theme song was written by Matt Berger and Melissa Lusk. Our logo was designed by Caitlin Trishani. Special thanks to Lindsay Rebar for our temporary recording space. Until next time, be like Brenda and go buy a bath bomb for someone who can't stand you. <laughs> <laughs>